From San Francisco, California, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Thomas Beckholz joins us to talk about elementary particles, cosmology, and astrophysics. So stay tuned for all of this here on the Grok Science Show. to the Grox Science Show. Well, today on this episode of Grox, Dr. Thomas Buckholz joins us to talk about his potentially breakthrough work to unify and expand our understanding of elementary particles, astrophysics, and cosmology. His background includes earning a PhD in physics from the University of California, Berkeley, after receiving an MS in mathematics from Caltech. Tom brings to his work broad experiences in creating useful insights and producing practical results, including in fields other than physics and mathematics. These include his crucial role in catalyzing innovation throughout a large energy utility. And while he served as a commissioner in the United States General Services Administration, the group that he led sparked a nationwide movement to improve governmental services to the public. And so today's discussion revolves around three fundamental questions. Is there an elementary particle analog to the chemical periodic table of elements? What is dark matter and what is dark energy? So how do we better understand these concepts? And is there an underlying model that helps explain all of this? Frank, this is each of these three is actually at least a 90-year-old problem. The first elementary particle, the electron, was uh, identified in the 1800s, late 1800s. The need for dark matter or something like it, an unexplained phenomenon that uh, people think dark matter might explain, also dates back to before 1900. And the possibility or need for something like dark energy as a force or pressure in the universe dates probably to 1925 or slightly earlier, so at least 90 years old on each of these. And I think I was just very, some combination of lucky and persistent. Uh, I had had some ideas for a long time about ways to look at some aspects of physics a little bit differently. For example, photons, and we're going to talk about that later. And then I heard a talk about uh, changes in the rate of expansion of the universe, and that gave me something to focus on, as I believe, and it it became a a point of enthusiasm. One wants to try to explain something, perhaps something unexplained, as opposed to do just abstract theory, or as opposed to just get, uh, in my case, opposed to just getting involved in collecting and trying to interpret data. So those two things and uh, some freedom to do things came together. And what came out of this was, uh, first of all, a hypothesis about changes in the rate of expansion of the universe and what might cause that. Then second, so dark energy, in effect. Then second, a realization that if that solution was going, or that idea was going to become well uh, articulated, and credible, I might have to solve 
the periodic table problem uh, brought forward to uh, elementary particles. The periodic table was, uh, shall we say, announced in its first form around 1869 by Mendeleev in Russia, and that was done uh, years, a few years, before people had any idea of elementary particles or that atoms had uh, definite constituents within them. And so it was a major breakthrough. It was a theory of what? And by coming up with the cataloging technique, then there was a table, a two-dimensional table, and it was possible to look at the table and say, maybe uh, there are elements in some of the other boxes in this table. So I, I realized I needed to do that for a similar thing for elementary particles, because dark energy should come out of uh, some more thorough uh, and better grounded theory as to what all, or at least more, elementary particles than we know today, uh, what maybe all of them are. So those two ideas came forward, and at the same time I was aware that uh, people had measured a, an apparently fairly stable over a long period of time ratio of dark matter density of the universe to ordinary matter density of the universe. And so I, I took one more piece of insight into this and said maybe that ratio, which is slightly more than five to one, dark matter density of the universe to ordinary matter density of the universe, was measured several decades ago based on the cosmic microwave background radiation studies that people did at that time. These ideas sort of played back and forth, and I think uh, that it led to, among other things, sharpening up some ideas about math modeling and a small extension, but maybe significant, to mathematics related to something called harmonic oscillators, especially multi-dimension ones, but very simple ones otherwise. And all of it came together, and then it was a, sort of a matter of playing off of what I've come to characterize as the following sort of thing. Uh, the effort was done based on a very small data set. There are 24 known elementary particles, if you count all eight gluons. Most tables show 17, but uh, there are eight gluons and uh, 24 elementary particles uh, by uh, normal counts. And so we've got that. We've got maybe three areas in the rate of expansion of the universe. We've got one ratio of uh, dark matter to ordinary matter, and it's not quite an integer but uh, a little bit more than one. And playing back and forth in all of that uh, was an exercise then in what I would call a mental application of big data techniques on what I've already described, a very small data set, because beyond what I just told you, basically there isn't much more to say other than each of the elementary particles has a spin and a charge and a mass. So it's very, very little data. So there's a potential there for uh, too many possible theories, mm -hmm. but somehow it seems to have coalesced. And the proof point for me, or a, a credibility point for me now, is that I did not start out to explain any uh, other ratios of dark matter effects to ordinary matter effects. Mm -hmm. But in the last two years after the basic theory stabilized, I have come across thankfully based on primarily on science journalist feeds, uh, pointers to brand new published information. It's basically the last two years on a little bit 
older, but on observed ratios of dark matter effects to ordinary matter effects, let's say for galaxies, and there are some others possibly. And as those came by, I kind of looked at my theory and said, I think I can explain those. And so that has led to realizing how I would explain them to maybe some new insight into galaxy formation that seems to uh, give at least one explanation for some aspects of, of formation of some galaxies that don't seem to fit the normal uh, type of model that people attribute to the, a role for something called dark matter halos. Mm -hmm. I don't get rid of the other one, I just offer some other possibilities, and that possibility seems to explain some things that people are having apparently some difficulty with mm. uh, for a few galaxies that they found. So that's kind of a, an overview, and uh, be happy to talk a bit about the three major uh, areas of new findings, shall we say, if you want me to. One of the thoughts you have on this uh, idea of a periodic table for elementary particles is uh, on the idea of predicting ones that haven't been found. So do you, do you see an analogy of periodicity that you would see in the chemical periodic table that you would also see in the elementary particle table? That's a, a very perceptive question, and the answer is yes. With the periodic table for chemical elements, the sort of winning combination of ideas uh, was uh, chemical behavior plus atomic weight. And in my case, there seems to be three guiding principles and then one other wrinkle. So let me do the wrinkle first. And that is that out of the known particles, I have divided things into two categories. They come out of the same math basis in my modeling. They correlate with solutions to harmonic oscillator math. But they don't display adequately well on one chart usually. So I differentiate something that I've started to call simple particles, like the electron or the quark or the gluon, from something I call long-range forces, which today people would associate with the photon and with the possible but not verified graviton. And that makes things a little easier to display and talk about, although... So in the realm of elementary particles, the three organizing principles parallel to uh, chemical behavior and atomic weight for Mendeleev are the spin of the particle, a parameter that I call little sigma, which is either plus one or minus one. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then whether the mass is known to be truly non-zero or can be characterized as what I would call zero-like. We, uh, in the known particle set, have some things that are associated with zero mass, namely gluons and photons. Mm. And then uh, people have looked into the question of masses of neutrinos and have come up with the idea that observations point to the idea that neutrinos have very tiny masses, but they're non-zero. I have used the word zero-like for that mm. and actually offer a, a theory that includes the possibility that neutrinos actually do have zero mass which would, it turns out, align with the elementary particle standard model, but not with the way people interpret some astrophysics and other data. Uh, my theory does suggest an alternate interpretation of that data that would be consistent with zero-mass neutrinos. 
So anyway, we have these three parameters. One is spin, one is mass, either definitely non-zero or call it zero life. And then this parameter, uh, little sigma. Now, sigma, little sigma equals plus one correlates with a term that I think has gone out of favor, but I've sort of seen over the years, called free-ranging. We can see the particle or observe effects of the particle as if it's moving in rather uninhibited in space. And so the known particles that fall in that category include neutrinos, the charged leptons, namely the electron, the muon, and the tauon, and then the Higgs boson and the two weak interaction bosons, the so-called W and Z bosons. I predict some others in that category. And then in sigma equals minus one, we might call these always confined. So far, nobody has found instances of them where they're sort of on their own. They're always kind of tied together. And the ones that we know of that fall in this category, uh, non-zero mass are the six quarks that are found inside protons and neutrons and, and similar particles and the eight gluons that are felt to provide most of the energy that holds together quarks in things like protons. So uh, that's the categorization scheme for elementary particles, for the simple particles within elementary particles. For the long-range forces, the photon, the would-be graviton, and so forth, that falls in the category of integer spins, so uh, photons spin one in units of h-bar, and uh, so integer spins, graviton would be spin two. It falls in the category of zero mass, although there are some ways to model that stuff so that uh, in effect you get a little bit of mass. It goes with the idea of refractive index, but uh, we probably won't spend much time mm -hmm. on that one. And then uh, it falls in the category of free-ranging or sigma equals plus one. So in this arena, uh, having placed that in the right place in the, in the overall scheme, then the interesting questions become uh, the spin and what we might call uh, the order of the pole. And <clears throat> I need to explain that. In, at this stage of the theory, I've taken advantage of doing something that runs a little bit counter to the historical development, part of the historical development of physics, but there's presumably nothing wrong with it other than people may say it's novel and unexpected. And that is, this theory develops without having to select a theory of motion. So I avoid at the beginning, do we want to use Newton, Newtonian motion or special relativity or general relativity or some modification of one of those, uh, we just leave that all out and find later a way to start to bring it back in. So this work is agnostic to a theory of motion, and that, that actually feels very good. You might not like it that your list of elementary particles depends on uh, your choice of theory of motion. That, that doesn't sound very appealing. Well, anyway, so we wind up with in this so-called G family, or long-range forces, with uh, integer spins and then a pole. And if we look at, uh, for components, so if we look at electromagnetism, generalized, uh, the spin one photon-like thing, without motion, then it's appropriate that the solutions come up with different pieces. So there's a monopole piece, which mathematically means one solution per item, and it also means uh, 
a force law of 1 over r squared. So that's the familiar electrostatic one. So there's a monopole piece that looks like an interaction with charge. Mm -hmm. And that's really good because we know stuff that has charge and no magnetic moment, for example. And there's another piece that's dipole. In fact, there are a few components there. The main one, for most purposes, is uh, correlates with magnetic dipole moment. And we know of stuff that has dipole magnetic moment, like a magnet, a bar magnet, or the Earth, and that does not necessarily have a charge. Bar magnets tend not to have charges. The Earth, we don't care in this case. It might or might not. So in some sense, it's good to have a theory that has some independence there. Now, people who understand Maxwell's equations may have some, uh, some qualms at this point. But remember, we have no theory of motion at this point. We're agnostic to that. So we actually need what we're talking about here. And then it turns out for generalized electromagnetism or photon, whatever you want to call it, there is a quadrupole piece. And that one... It seems to be very easy to visualize. If you think of the Earth, the axis for the magnetic field actually moves around a bit, and it does not, at least within known history, match the axis of rotation of the Earth. So this becomes a potential for a quadrupole effect, and it feels really good that those solutions are prominent here. When we get to spin two, by the way, there's another solution in here which we may come back to later, that has something to do with the dark matter ratio, but let's skip that for the moment. It's spin two. Uh, classical physics associates gravity with the possibility of spin two uh, behavior, maybe a so-called graviton. And that's about as far as it gets. General relativity tends to correlate with this, and people are, are semi-happy but not completely happy. There are, there are qualms uh, as to whether general relativity applies in realms for which it has not been verified, in particular for the very largest scales that people know of. There are published papers that debate this a bit for good reason. At any rate, the same mathematics basis that has been, that generates all the stuff we've talked about, does a really interesting thing in spin two. There is a monopole thing which I would associate with normal uh, classical physics gravity, and therefore it's in effect a component of a graviton, since what we're talking about here is agnostic between theories of motion, and in particular between classical theories versus quantum theories. Uh, there is a dipole component, and that, I think, very much, so that's a 1 over r cubed, non-spherically symmetric force. That seems to correlate with spinning spherically symmetric mass or mass energy. It turns out, if we're going to explain the uh, current rate of expansion of the universe going up, and later some aspects about galaxies. This is a repulsive force. It's not spherically symmetric. It is 1 over r cubed in any direction you go, but not the same in various directions. So that's a repulsive force. There's a quadrupole force, a component of force, which would have to be attractive to match uh, something in the rate of expansion of the universe. And conveniently as attractive would have some uh, nice role in galaxy formation. And then it turns out there are two octopole components uh, which would be repulsive and could explain early rapid expansion of the universe and would explain some aspects of galaxy formation also. And there are a few miscellaneous things that I've left out that mathematically look like they're less prominent. But for those who have some physics background, 
some of the things we're leaving out here, including one of the spin two ones, uh, actually seems to take care of, at least qualitatively, the wonderful issue of anomalous magnetic dipole moments, probably a term most people don't understand. But um, for those people who do, this is a triumph of 20th century physics. Uh, the electron and muon anomalous magnetic dipole moment. That's not the nominal magnetic dipole moment. This is a small variation. Uh, those have been measured incredibly accurately, and they are theoretically calculated to, I guess, similar degrees of accuracy based on uh, per so-called perturbation techniques or Feynman diagrams. So we actually have some coverage for that in this um, general scheme of things, too. At any rate, uh, the work does go on to beyond this combination of gravity and dark energy forces, now all nicely wrapped up in spin two in either quantum or classical uh, candidate format. It does go on and predict some higher order spins, and it looks like uh, there's a very strong suggestion that the spin four pieces uh, have an, an octopole component that would interact with neutrinos and that lead to an explanation for the two effects that people tend with a more limited uh, particle set, a more limited long-range force set, to attribute to gravitation. And those two effects are uh, the idea that neutrinos undergo so-called neutrino oscillations and that certain astrophysical measurements are interpreted as um, saying that neutrinos, the average total neutrino mass across three new types of neutrinos is uh, approximately a tenth of, tenth of an electron volt, if I remember the number right. It turns out there's a convenient way to look at that and in here and maybe even think that one has that number pinned down. It may be that number is converging on something called the fine structure constant, I think it's squared times the mass of the electron, something like that. So uh, one of the observations uh, you touch upon is uh, the depletion of cosmic microwave background radiation. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how this model would help to explain that? Okay, well this was one of those things that fortuitously came to publication and my attention in the last couple of years. And what happened there, it's an ingenious experiment, it's a complicated experiment, but simple equipment, and I think sophisticated computation, as far as I can tell, I'm not an expert in, in what I just said, but it sounds right. They put a tabletop thing out in the desert in Australia, and they just collected uh, measurement of cosmic microwave background radiation. The hypothesis was that we have a lot of hydrogen atoms, and over billions of years, the hydrogen atoms have been interacting with cosmic microwave background radiation and have de been depleting a portion of that radiation based on a so-called hyperfine transition, or 21 centimeter or something or other, is the wavelength that they're talking about. So they did this measurement, and they came up based on a rather sophisticated, and again, I don't understand it, but a, apparently a very interesting set of calculations about the evolution of the early universe. They came up with an expected amount of depletion. They measured at least twice, maybe slightly more than twice, as much depletion as they expected. And so this 
leads to all kinds of potential interesting questions. When I saw that, and I thank some science journalists for calling to my attention, I looked into my chart of components of long-range forces and smiled immediately because there was one component here in here that just stuck out. If we're going to explain this, I need to... Um, say perhaps a little bit about a part of this that we haven't talked about, and that is the major hypothesis about dark matter. So maybe we should do that and then remind me to come back to uh, this depletion question. So at, at a time when I launched into this, there was uh, some data available that suggested that there was about five times as much dark matter as ordinary matter in terms of density of the universe and that there might be about three times as much so-called dark energy density of the universe as the combination of the other two. And this just looked too tempting to ignore. I mean, it looked like a ratio of one to six, that's one to one plus five, and then take that and one to three the next time. So it began to feel like maybe there are 24 things that are replicated, 24 units of the same stuff. And some of that flavor is still around in this. In particular, the one to call attention to here at the moment is the 1 to 5 ratio, or 1 to 5 plus. And so what it looks like, uh, if my stuff comports with nature in this realm, is that the plus is actually a new type of particle. One of the elementary particle sets or pieces that I predict back in an earlier part of this talk, I call arcs. And I chose that name because it's quarks basically without the Q. And in physics, sometimes Q stands for charge. And what I found in my very simple table, it's actually quite much smaller than the, the Mendeleev table, is there was a space for non-free-ranging particles, zero mass, spin one-half, basically quarks with no charge or mass, and there, were, there should be six of them, just the way there are six quarks. So if you marry those up with gluons, you now have a potential proton or neutron-like particle that you can make, particles like that, and they have no uh, charge, so they do not interact with electromagnetism. They become a very interesting category for dark matter. They do would interact because they have energy in them uh, with gravity. And so these drift off into the direction that people might call WIMPs, as in weakly interacting massive particles, but I am hesitant to suggest a name because people who came up with the term WIMP uh, had something in mind, and it probably wasn't this. It, it's more likely an elementary particle. This would not be an elementary particle. It would be based on gluons, which we know, and these arcs, which we have yet to detect. To fast forward one step, these become, in my explanation for things, the plus in the 5 plus to 1. The 5 uh, and 1 now become 6 units that I would call isomers, and in this case, isomers of charge. Basically, it's the same set of elementary particles. There's an electron-like particle, there are quarks, and so forth. But it's a different version of charge, and with it comes a different version of photons. So you now, in effect, if you want to 
go this way, can think of six overlapping universes. They interact uh, through gravity. They do not interact much. There is a small caveat in here. They do not interact much through what we would call electromagnetism. So these sort of photons we would not be able to see because they're not... Yeah. And they'd be the, parallel to what, where we were. They, they would be just like ours. There are some conjectures in ongoing physics theory or traditional physics theory about so-called dark matter photons. This is not totally wild. Mm -hmm. But um, I think one of the problems that people may be encountering, and this assumes that I'm sort of right in what I'm doing, which we don't really know, but assuming it is, uh, is there have been a lot of attempts to do little pieces of dark matter or dark energy or elementary particles, and it really looks to me like it would be very difficult to discover what I found if you didn't actually try to start out to do much of the whole thing together, or at least enough of it, the way I, the way I did or in some other way, to get to something like this. I have the idea that there are six isomers, basically, of charged particles, and so we have six copies of um, hydrogen atoms and uh, made out of respective copies of charged particles and so forth, because uh, it is electromagnetism that binds hydrogen atoms together, at least the electrons to the nuclei. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we, we certainly will have you for more uh, on this topic and also on uh, unrelated topics in terms of the, the work you've done uh, in government, in business, and even in uh, academia. Thank you so much for coming here today. My privilege, my pleasure, and I certainly hope readers um, and listeners uh, get something from this. And uh, uh, just in case you're interested in contacting me, the easiest way to find some information is to look up uh, via online search something called the Ronin Institute, R-O-N-I-N, Ronin Institute. And I'm listed there as one of their uh, participants. And, you can find information about the research, a little bit of bio, and links to more bio and more research. Great. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Rock Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook, and Twitter. You can also email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music.